0: this time on waters of tomorrow they laughed at me for trying to invent a better mouse trap now i'll show them all by building the ultimate mouse trap <laughs>
1: Hello everybody, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review podcast, where we put the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gep and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched the ultimate computer!
0: Of ultimate destiny. Speaking of putting the humanities back into things, uh, anyway...
1: Uh, <laughs> Uh, this episode was written by DC Fontana based on a short story I couldn't find by someone named Lawrence N. Wolf.
0: I don't think I'm familiar with that name.
1: Yeah, neither am I, and neither is Wikipedia.
0: Sorry, guys, that's all we got.
1: Alright, <laughs> okay, we've got two guest stars this week. Uh, we have Barry Russo playing Commodore Wesley, who's the authority figure. We're not supposed to like this episode.
0: I thought he was all right, though.
1: Yeah, he's all right. It's just amazing just how much they hate anyone who's above the rank of captain.
0: <laughs> so I, I guess the captain is like the 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 uh, you know, the, the golden spot here in the ranks. If you uh, get promotion, that means you're some sort of asshole. If you don't get there, it means you're incompetent. You know,
1: <laughs> all, even other captains are suspect. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, they might be captains who didn't get there because uh, because they're not good enough, or they're uh, captains that are aiming for that promotion. If they if they're totally okay with their position, then they're then they're great. So <laughs> the
1: main guest star this week is William Marshall playing Doctor Richard Daystrom.
0: And, uh, yeah, he's been in a bunch of stuff.
1: Yeah, he was a Broadway actor, an opera singer, was in. A lot of TV shows around this time is pretty well known for playing a vampire in Blackula.
0: Yep. And uh, he's also, uh, he was also the king of cartoons in Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yes. So uh, he's done the full range.
1: <laughs> and just so you can imagine properly, if you have not seen him in anything before or seen this episode, he is six feet five inches tall and has one of the deepest voices I have ever heard on television.
0: Yes, he's huge and large and uh, and, and kind of amazing, actually.
1: Like, I'm pretty sure we're supposed to dislike him during the first half of this episode. And all like is, like, this guy makes some good points and yeah. he's way <laughs> more charismatic than Shatner.
0: <laughs> Shatner, you're being out-acted here. Well, I, I, that's easy, technically. But
1: <laughs> but not only is he being out-acted, but he's just like, this guy seems genuinely likable. Yeah, <laughs> and Kirk keeps attacking him, and I'm like, "Kirk, why are you being so mean? Like, I know you're tiny compared to this, you know, six foot five man. When you're down there at like five two or whatever, but,
0: um, Kirk, you're. I know the dynamic's supposed to be going the other way, but I'm actually siding with the guest star this week at this point. So maybe chill. <laughs> Alright,
1: I guess we should jump in since we're already talking about character dynamics. Yes, Kirk's pissed. Kirk's really pissed because he's gotten an order. Yep.
0: <laughs> like you know, I guess he doesn't get these very often, but uh, it's like, well, I have to go do something now. That's the okay. The
1: entire opening It's like, I got ordered to this space station. I don't even know why. They wouldn't tell me. Like this guy who outranks me told me to do a thing.
0: So we we we're, uh, this week's uh, Kirk is kind of whiny baby Kirk, okay.
1: Very. <laughs> <laughs> the superior officer in question is Commodore Wesley, who beams aboard to tell Kirk that he and the ship have been chosen for the honor of testing a new kind of computer called the M5 Multitronic Unit.
0: So this is some sort of new new uh, device here that uh, might be, say, a uh, 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 a big secret that they're even uh, uh, testing it. So maybe some base level security and not talking about it over uh, communication lines might be a good idea. Unless you weren't told, Kirk. Hmm.
1: So Spock knows everything about it because he's like a, a fifty billion computer scientist or whatever random number they made up.
0: Yeah, he, he put all his uh, skill points in computer science.
1: This is the most advanced computer ever conceived, and the hope is it will be capable of running all systems on a starship almost without the need of a crew.
0: Cool. Um so it's like the uh, the next generation enterprise uh, computer then.
1: It's like this computer can do the things that all the other computers on the ship can do but from a central point. Like, oh my god. What wizardry Master is this?
0: Controller. Yes. <laughs>
1: Connecting computers to one another.
0: <laughs> Wait, we we've just invented the starship internet.
1: To that end, the Enterprise is going to be equipped with an N5 computer by its creator, Dr. Daystrom, and taken down to a skeleton crew of about 20.
0: I guess that actually kind of makes sense. If you're trying to test an autonomous system and, you know, also the whole security thing I was mentioning earlier is kind of a thing you have to worry about. This is a brilliant idea of how to, how to you know, you know, you know sort of set up the, uh, the ship.
1: Also, Dr. Daystrom is well known because he is the inventor of what, they use to run all of their current computers which is apparently something called duotronics which means that in this universe computers are c- controlled by the number of tronics
0: uh, we're going to have a, a a quadtronic someday a octronic
1: well you had a you have a duotronic and this thing is a multitronic which means it all can have tronics. as many tronics as it wants
0: <laughs> sweet <laughs> finally parallel processing <laughs>
1: The M5 will lead the Enterprise in war game simulations, where it will be attacked by a Federation attack force commanded by Commodore Wesley.
0: Wesley, I'm, I hope you don't try, uh, attempt to do some dread pirating here.
1: This is going to be like four ships against what? so hugely unfair. And Kirk's like four ships against my Enterprise.
0: <laughs> oh, well, of course we'd kick their ass, but it'd be hard. Uh, we might get some damage.
1: What gives? <laughs> Kirk is not pleased about a computer taking over for people, and he's even more upset that Wesley's kind of a dick.
0: Yeah.
1: As Wesley insinuates that his job as captain even will become unnecessary should the N5 work as intended.
0: That does have beg some questions there, but anywho.
1: McCoy is also distrustful of computers and hates the idea that a computer might ever run anything ever. Spock thinks this idea is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, was this the point where they were talking about uh, the, uh, the medical uh, you know bay being like the last thing to be uh, replaced by computers then?
1: No, I think that was later. But Okay. Yeah, they're <laughs> like, yeah, medicine won't be, won't be taken over by computers anytime soon. Your job's safe. Dr. Daystrom, who is a massively tall man with a super deep voice and is way more charismatic than any other character on this entire show. Even Scotty. Is installing the M5 unit in engineering. He has to ask a bunch of permission to hook it up to main power because Scotty's dragging his feet and being kind of also mean to him.
0: Well, it is Scotty's, you know, uh, baby down there. Uh, He probably doesn't want someone mucking around with the main power cables.
1: That is not a bad point, yeah. Spock geeks out about the computer, while McCoy points out that they are testing this thing, but if something goes wrong and it doesn't work, they haven't left enough crew on board to run the ship, which is a pretty good point.
0: So to, to be honest though, they are supposed to be fairly close to a star base throughout the entire episode. So hopefully they'd be able to at least get the ship back to the star base. Also didn't just a couple episodes back. We had uh, basically everyone except a few people turned into uh, geometric shapes and some aliens are helping run the ship. And that was much less than 20 people.
1: Yeah. But aliens don't know how to run the ship. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> This, like, safety point gets flat out ignored by everyone because Kirk is doing some philosophizing. Or trying to. Yeah. Kirk says there are certain things that men have to do to remain men and your computer would rob them of that.
0: Hmm.
1: And Daystom says you could do a lot of stuff, but you want to be a starship captain because it makes you famous and powerful. And Kirk goes, oh.
0: Oh. <laughs> mm. Yeah, about that, huh? I'll have to think about this.
1: Kirk is sufficiently burned. Yes. And <laughs> runs off to Sulk, and McCoy goes, No, it's okay. You are a good <laughs> captain. Who's a good captain?
0: <laughs> You're the best captain we'll ever have, going forward ever.
1: Now, what McCoy actually says is, Yeah, it stinks when and you feel sorry for somebody when they lose their job to a computer. But when it happens to you, it's different. <laughs> Literally, that's what he says. Like, I'm not paraphrasing. Yeah. <laughs> Back on the bridge, they are putting the M5 through navigational tests. It's like, you, your navigational computer should probably be able to make automated course corrections already. Like, the, like, autopilot was already a thing before they even, like, had computers. Like, they had mechanical ways of keeping something on course. It's like, your Starship computer can't keep your ship flying in a straight line.
0: I guess not. But then again, it might be coming back to that sort of space as ocean sort of idea that, you know, you have to maybe make course corrections due to currents or something like that, but you don't got those in space, so...
1: Kirk keeps turning the M5 off every time it does anything, much to the annoyance of Dr. Daystrom, but they have direct orders to test the M5's capabilities to calculate and maintain the orbit of a planet and give recommendations of a planetary survey. The computer does this orbit perfectly, which it seems like they should do more, considering how many times they fall out of the sky when they try to yes. do it.
0: <laughs> Maybe at some point there was uh, something similar to what happened in the back uh, in, the, in the the, the history of, in the Dune universe, where there was some sort of uh, anti-robot jihad or something like that. Uh, uh, the uh, where they basically got rid of all the computers, and and now in Star Trek. We're after that time period or whatever, and they're like, well, we're back. We're, computers are cool again, and so we're developing them again, but we, we had to figure all this stuff out because we kind of intentionally got rid of all the, the previous knowledge, how to do this. Whoops.
1: But instead of in Dune, where they decided we're going to train people to do these very specific computery tasks, so they just went, "Ah, eh, we'll figure it out. It's fine.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> close enough was good.
1: <laughs> Kirk trying to show off that no computer could replace me, gives his recommendations for who he would send on the planetary survey. This includes himself, Dr. McCoy, Spock, an astrobiologist we've never heard of, and a geologist we've never heard of. Then, Dr. Daystrom asks for M5's recommendations. This is Spock, the same astrobiologist, and a different geologist. Gasp. And they play the frickin' stinger music for this. Yes.
0: (laughs) It's like, okay, the computer's made this different decision. Why is this important?
1: (laughs) Kirk gets really pissy. Dacenam asks the M5 to explain its decision-making process, and it says that, you know... The landing party needs the lead scientist, an astrobiologist, and there's two different geologists on board and this one did a planetary survey of this planet years ago when he was working for a mining corporation which is something Kirk didn't know.
0: Dun, dun, dun.
1: Also, they don't need Kirk and McCoy cuz why would you send the captain on a planetary survey
0: <laughs> to to uh wander around uh, and get into trouble and uh, get abducted by aliens? Uh, and or smell a sweet uh, gas cloud that uh, may be trying to kill everybody. That's why.
1: (laughs) Well, that's why he didn't pick Kirk and McCoy for the mission, and M5 says, they are unnecessary crewmen, and Kirk goes,
0: (gasps) unnecessary? Oh, uh, we'll we'll see about that. In the future, every away mission will have a captain for sure, right?
1: In the meantime, Scotty's been noticing that different parts of the ship have been shutting down ominously, and he's tracked this problem to the M5. (gasps) <gasps> oh, no. Is it shutting I, oh down no. parts of
0: the ship? But there's nobody h- hanging out?
1: Daystorm examines the computer and says, Nope, it's not a malfunction. It's turning off power to empty decks and systems that aren't in use.
0: That actually makes a lot of sense. Why waste the power?
1: You're on a spaceship.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> You're in a closed ecosystem here.
0: Don't want to be wasting stuff your resources here, guys.
1: McCoy later gets all... Tanked off that the computer like turned off his surgical equipment while he wasn't using it
0: <laughs> McCoy you don't really need to have the drill running 24-7 you know
1: This likes it as background noise <laughs> Kirk has a weird little breakdown and argument about how computers can't make value judgments probably I don't know why we're arguing this McCoy points out kind of rightly again that you know Computers can work a lot faster than human brains, but only on things that people tell them to. Yeah. <laughs> this also gets ignored.
0: So, so, so far we have, you know, the, the obvious observation of, you know, uh, you know, computers are a tool and they are, can be very efficient tools. And yeah, no one's really arguing that this is doing, being anything more than that at this point.
1: Daystrom calls the N-5 a brand new approach to computer science, and that's supposed to explain everything, I suppose.
0: This, uh, this reminds me of some talks I've been to. Anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the bridge calls. The Enterprise is being stalked by an unidentified ship. This is the Starfleet Sack
0: Force. Oh no, it's early. Oh no
1: they communicate say that they are here for a unscheduled combat simulation of the M5 computer. Hmm. So, they set yeah. phasers to 1 100th one power and turn over control to the M5, which handily defeats the attacking ship.
0: Hmm. Oh, that works. Um, I guess the whole relaying of orders between people on the various uh, other ships and basically not really giving them much uh, will room to react uh, instinctively or to think that means the computer bested them easily or something, I guess.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I guess because the computer can control the ship faster than this weird thing they're doing where Kirk orders something, the person on the bridge who's in charge of it has to relay the instructions to a completely different section of the ship for them to do something because their systems are so weirdly disconnected. Yep. (laughs) So, yeah, having central control over everything in the ship lets you react faster to what's going on.
0: Yes. So why why is this not a thing we have presently? (laughs)
1: Spock has a interesting comment, I guess, just to show even Spock's iffy about this, because he is impressed by the new computer, and he likes advances in computer stuff generally, but he doesn't want to serve under a computer, and computers cannot instill loyalty in a crew. We have yep. some good points here. You see, maybe it's yes. like command and executive decisions where people have to make a lot of you know human-based decisions using their intuition and other things. Aren't really in danger of being automated.
0: Yes, we're going to be keeping those around. Yeah, we 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 should be designing systems where there is still the human element, but making a better tool for that human element to use. That should be okay. Now
1: i'm going to take over my captain job. It's captain. I'm (laughs) captain. I'm the captain. (laughs) <laughs> this thing's flying, my sh- no, I don't think so. I sit in the ch- in the big chair.
0: I I give the orders, man.
1: Wesley calls to congratulate the M5 and Captain Dunsil. Kirk storms off. McCoy has to be the the one who doesn't know what's going on, and Spock explains to him that Dunzel is a term
0: used to mean
1: a useless component.
0: So, is it a a, a GNDN type uh, type device here? goes nowhere does nothing
1: kirk sulks mccoy brings him some alcohol and kirk romanticizes about how technology is ruining exploration
0: old sailing ships they were the best man yeah.
1: we used to like sail and poop into the ocean
0: hooray i'm gonna go poop out the the the, the airlock down
1: his sulking is interrupted by the detection of another ship. This is a slow-moving barge identified as a completely autonomous unmanned ore carrier. How do you have a completely autonomous unmanned ship if, like, this thing being able to fly the ship at all is such a giant freaking leap forward in computer science?
0: That's a good question. Wait a moment. Does, is this M5's rival? B5? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> For some reason... M5 decides this ship needs to die.
0: Oh no, it is the rival.
1: (laughs) There's nothing they can do as M5 engages ship control and destroys the ore carrier before they can do anything about it.
0: Well, uh, maybe it's time to uh, shut off this device here because obviously it's doing something weird and we're not entirely sure what's up.
1: Yes, Daystrom goes like, but no, there's no one on
0: board. Fine. Don't die. There's no murders here. Come on, guys. This thing just
1: randomly destroyed something then i don't know why there's no reason to shut it down but they are able to make him except that now the m5 has directed a force field around itself and they can't turn it off
0: wait a moment how does it do that mm. like is there like force field projectors just kind of everywhere on the ship
1: Apparently, force field projectors are really freaking easy to make because every time they have a robot or machine or anything, it's like, "Oh my god, it grabbed a small stick and made a force field projector."
0: <laughs> well, again, uh, you know, just a few episodes back, we had uh, you know Spock devising a laser and a light bulb and a couple crystals. So you know, science is apparently very easy to do. <laughs>
1: Scotty decides that they have to disconnect it from the main ship, Power. They do this, but then M5 sends out a beam that disintegrates the dude who did it.
0: Well, goodbye, um, uh, what was his name? Harper, I think? Yeah. yeah. Bye!
1: Dastam insists the M5 didn't mean to do it, it just, you know, was disconnected, realized it needed more power, and the engineer was unfortunately in the way.
0: Also, what? This is, it, how is it able to get power via some sort of energy beam like this?
1: Uh, if you shoot a laser at a battery, everyone knows you—you know—that powers your laser. It's just science.
0: I'll—I'll <laughs> I'll leave out the—the the rant about you know—you uh, know ionization of air for now.
1: In the briefing room, they go over how the M5 has taken over all of the ship. They have only an hour before the official war games are set to begin, at which point it will probably destroy the entire attacking Federation force. Spock and Scotty think that they can disconnect it from the helm before they get there by engaging some backup systems, but it will take basically the entire time they have left, so they do that.
0: Uh, let's get started, but let's not waste any time. Action.
1: McCoy discusses the M5 with Daystrom while they do this stuff. Daystrom describes the M5 as a child that's learning, that can still be taught, and helps to grow. McCoy is skeptical, but at least he's a bit less mean about the
0: whole thing. It's you know, some sort of. You know, we've already sort of established that it's some sort of complicated AI, uh, and I guess maybe more time letting it learn might have been in order?
1: Later, he and Kirk are looking over Daystrom's biography. Uh, Daystrom apparently invented the duotronic computer system that makes everything function when he was 25. So young. Spent the rest of his life trying to live up to this early life accomplishment.
0: Sounds like he probably did that in grad school then. Meat.
1: So I did think this was it. They're like, oh my God, he was so young. He's basically a child prodigy. How could you possibly ever live up to having your life's work completed when you're 25? It's like, I don't think they're wrong. But at this point in our society, we're basically like, are you not a tech billionaire by the time you're 22? What a failure at life. (laughs) My God.
0: (laughs) You haven't done all the things that by the time you're you're 25, then you know then your life's over, man. There's no going back. You know you're unsuccessful, and everyone has to hate you forever.
1: So in the 60s, child prodigy was you made an advancement in computer science when you were 25. Now, if you want it to look weird, if you want like a weird genius kid on TV, they graduated college when they were 12. Yes,
0: uh, and they've uh, have a successful multinational business at 13.
1: Oh, how the times have changed.
0: (laughs) To the ridiculous level.
1: Spock and Scotty finish working just in time, and they switch the ship back to manual control. Hooray! But they didn't. Whoops. Turns out M5 was on to them, and used Hmm. this plan as a distraction to use up all the time they had. That
0: dastardly computer, it's smarter than us.
1: At this point, they finally get Daystrom to admit that he... Didn't particularly make the M5, he just copied his brain engrams to the computer. So it's basically just his brain in a box, but faster because computer reasons.
0: Yes, (laughs) basically it's some sort of like positronic network, except not and faster. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I don't think Asimov's positronic as a word was in common use in the 60s.
0: Uh, Not really, no.
1: But now it's time for the war games. Four Federation ships approach the Enterprise. The M5 reacts just like it did before, except with full phaser power, easily disabling two of the ships, killing dozens of crew members before the others fall back.
0: Well, um, I guess the Enterprise is doomed then because obviously something's gone horribly wrong and the other ships will uh, swing around and uh, try to take it down and, uh, and hope for the best because they're up against the ultimate computer that's much faster at ordering than they are.
1: Daystrom's really, really upset about this, and he tries to talk the M5 down. The M5 thinks it needs to protect itself, even though Daystrom keeps telling it it shouldn't murder and kill people because I made you to make it so that people could not have to do dangerous things, and now you're just killing everyone. stop it,
0: please? Please, I beg of you.
1: Then Daystrom goes into full manic meltdown mode, going like, everyone hated me, thanks to left behind my back, I was so young. Boy genius, they called me, <laughs> and then they sedate him.
0: So so you're starting to sound like a, a megalomaniac here now. Um, chill, dude.
1: How could he possibly live up to the achievement of inventing something in his 20s?
0: I don't know. Have, have a worthwhile life? I...
1: Yeah, they sedate him and drag him off, but, you know, they still have a murderous computer to deal with.
0: Yeah. One thing at a time, you know? To
1: make matters worse, they picked up communications between Wesley and Starfleet. Saying that because the Enterprise has attacked the Federation ships and is refusing to communicate, their attack force has permission to destroy them. But now with the N5 in control, that's basically signed the attack force's death warrant.
0: Uh, Either way, there's going to be a lot more dead people at the end of this uh, encounter here. And, uh, you know.
1: Kirk tries one last time to talk the M5 down. In short, he asks the M5 if murder is wrong. He goes, yeah, murder is wrong. I was taught this. Um, programmer daddy
0: yeah because uh, uh, daystrom like yeah throughout it's been sort you know made clear that he, the, the, his motivation is that he wishes to uh, uh reduce the number of deaths because if there's less people going out in space uh on these on, on these starships like this then there are going to be less people at risk and that's a good thing so hooray less death
1: but you did kill people m5 and for some reason this time it believes them this is like the fourth time they've told it that it killed people, and this is the first time it goes, oh my god, I killed people.
0: Oh, there might have been some cognitive dissonance there, something like that. Yeah, maybe a, oh, this, oh, you mean this isn't a simulation? Holy smokes.
1: Then Kirk goes, what's the penalty for murder? And M5 goes, it is death. Which, yeah, still.
0: Okay then. Okay.
1: <laughs> then it shuts itself down. Scotty runs down and turns it off, but they... You know, can't get communications back up, even though they could have shields and weapons. Kirk orders them to power down completely. If they you get killed, it's worth killing off the 19 people left on this ship to save the thousand or so that are coming at them.
0: Though so I guess if you turn the shields on and just kind of took some hits until you get communications up as well, that could also be a plan. But we don't go. It that could route. be.
1: That could be a plan, especially since all the other ships are damaged and yours isn't. Yes. But Wesley, seeing that the Enterprise is dead in space, goes, I'm going to bet that this isn't a trap, and calls off the attack. All
0: right, so no one more, no one else dies, yeah. Hooray.
1: Later on, everything's back to normal. Kirk remarks on how he bet on Wesley's humanity, which is something that no computer could do. Um,
0: Hooray?
1: Bach remarks on how if they programmed a computer using McCoy's brain, it would be super illogical and funny. And then they laugh all the way to the bridge because people are dead, but Kirk's still in charge.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and sorry, McCoy, for uh, being insulted there, but ha
1: <laughs> it wasn't even a joke. And like he says the thing, which is supposed to be the joke. They go, hey, hey and then go onto the bridge and then just all start laughing. Yes. Out of nowhere.
0: Well, well, maybe they they have uh, some sort of weird appearance thing that they've sort of worked out that whenever they arrive together, they need to be all like looking like they're enjoying themselves.
1: They get on the bridge like, oh, no, nitrous oxides in the in the atmosphere again. (laughs) Ah."
0: (laughs) We should probably fix this. (laughs) So the ultimate computer.
1: Yeah. So either computers are bad or scientists be crazy. Yeah. Or both. Or both. Don't put your crazy scientist in a computer.
0: And maybe computers are only bad because of crazy scientists?
1: So there's a few points that they have on this. Well, you've got some sort of computer's bad, computer mm-hmm. psychology thing, and it's wrong to automate jobs because humans can do human things that computers can't do, which really no one's arguing. Yeah. Like the entire argument for computer or robotic automation in jobs is that there are some things that, yeah, humans can do, but they arguably shouldn't, because if you have an assembly line worker whose entire job is to screw in one screw over and over and over all day, you really shouldn't have a person be doing that because it's kind of immoral.
0: Yeah,' <laughs> it's you know it's turning a person into a tool, and there's not really decision making going on there, so the rest of the person is kind of relevant.
1: The only problem that you actually hit with automation is when automation started in the like, 40s and 50s, immediately after World War II. Like, we invented a huge amount of automation for our war machine during World War II, and then we transitioned to that into civilian production afterward, which is why we had a massive economic boom in the United States through the 40s, 50s, and 60s.
0: I I got all these machines and uh, subway lines that we don't need to use to make tanks anymore and people that are super experts at, you know, running and building these things. So why can't we use this stuff to make a lot of money? And then they did.
1: And automation has quadrupled production. Like, I think that's a conservative estimate. I forgot to pull up any numbers on this. So I'm just randomly making up things. But, you
0: know, (laughs) do your own research, people.
1: We like we we automation after World War II made production skyrocket like the 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 like efficiency at which one person comparatively makes products now is so much higher but instead of going hey this means everyone has to work less for the same amount of production and the save standard of living overall throughout the country, like everyone can like not have to work as hard and maybe even get paid more because we're making so much more stuff for the same amount of work. Mm-hmm. They all went, well, what if we just pocket the difference in the company, tell people that they need to work even harder now because that's how production works somehow, pay them less because you know their job is worth less now because they need to do less work to make more things.
0: Mm-hmm. So... I think Daystrom maybe has missed this particular lesson from our history.
1: See, the problem problem with automation is not that it displaces someone from a job, because if you can automate the job with a computer, a person probably shouldn't be doing it. It's not going to be creatively fulfilling. They're not making any executive decisions. You're not using that person's skills effectively, because there's lots of stuff that people can do that machines can't, like decision-making and art and communication.
0: and uh, when you're dealing with mass production, you know you, you you can very much have a mass production of people doing these specific jobs, and but because you need a certain level of consistency to uh, even try, uh, you know, uh, you know, give lip service to trying to employ their, uh, you know, the the, the their, their innate, uh, you know, uh, uh, crafting and all that, the skills they develop for this sort of task, uh, will you know, so you like you know the situation where you have a single person uh, start you know, do start to finish of a single product. That's going to reduce the, the uh, u- uh, universality of the final product. Uh, there's going to be inconsistencies because not everyone's going to uh, employ their skills the same way. And so you 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 know, it's from a a consistency standpoint for your product, it makes sense to have the jobs broken up into you know a single tasks that. that someone or a machine would be doing over and over and over again so
1: issue that you hit with automating jobs away which is something we're still talking about now Mm -hmm. is not exactly the fact that you took someone's job away it's that when someone doesn't have the job they're screwed Mm -hmm. Like if you if you didn't have a system where someone had to maintain any employment no matter how menial uh, or you know basically starve to death then if you automated away a menial task, you could go, well, that's great. Now we can free up all these people who had to do this menial task to make our society work, and they can go do something better with their time.
0: Yeah, you know, they could uh, you know, go back to school, you know, learn something else to do, uh, or they could you know, p- pick up, say, creative works, become an artist, a writer, a musician, or something like that.
1: I mean, that's the thing. You could use those same skills if you work in like a steel factory making steel and then some computer comes in and automates some of it. Well, now you, you know how to work this stuff. Go, you know, make something cool with these skills yeah. you have. You <laughs> don't have to go off and learn to be a computer scientist.
0: Yeah, you know, you have uh, experience working steel. So let's build a, a kick ass structure, uh, you know, an art piece or maybe uh, get some friends together. And it's like we're going to make a, a giant robot. This could be really cool. Now I want a giant robot.
1: But you can't do that because unless you had somehow like saved up enough money that you could basically retire when your job got automated, like you are beholden to this corpor- to this company that was giving you your monthly paycheck to be able to live and now that's gone and you have to go quickly scramble to find another company but you know, jobs at the skill level that you were previously working at got automated away so now you have to try to go back to school and do something else or do something even more menial that people haven't bothered to automate yet and it becomes a major problem just because we don't have anything to do with the people who were displaced because we've created a situation in our society right now where you are so defined by your job and career we even consider not having a job for even a minute to be this like massive stain on someone like if you don't or can't work, you are basically completely worthless in society, which means when we inevitably displace a lot of workers with automation, which we probably should be doing for the sake of everyone, but now they are unemployed, which means that they are basically worse than trash because they don't have jobs and aren't contributing, even though there's plenty of ways they could contribute if we gave them the tools to do so.
0: So we have a societal problem you know, in the in the now that we're just sort of, it's trying to ignore, and it's kind of getting ridiculous.
1: Yeah, we we offset it to automation. We say the problem is that automation is taking people's jobs away, not that when someone's job gets taken away, they're screwed. Like jobs end; it just happens. Yeah, <laughs> nobody needs you know nobody needs you to make freaking like let like fancy leather boots so much anymore because we all started wearing tennis shoes. Like those jobs just changed.
0: You know, uh, there you know there are people that still uh make uh, horseshoes, but that's not something that's necessarily as needed anymore,
1: yeah, you don't have as many horses the the entire job of the people who used to wander around with sweepers and buckets and clean up horse poop like not really a thing anymore <laughs> yep <laughs> it we didn't automate it away, it just changed
0: yeah did the 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 world uh keeps moving on, and we as a society need to be more nimble about. Helping people, uh, without you know, to 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 uh, endure the the transitions in our, our our how our how our society runs, and yeah, and that's not addressed at all this episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, see, that's exactly the thing. We just like don't allow for transition periods because if you do need to pick up some new skills, like the, you keep hitting this weird thing. We're like, what if we just teach everyone to be computer scientists? Like, well, that's dumb because then everyone will be computer scientists and that might change too or you'll have like too many people in the market or something but even a lot of people don't feel like being a computer scientist but if you gave someone the opportunity to change their skill set or do something else or even figure out what else they could do with their current skill set or just not have to like or not be forced to work constantly to survive because maybe they could do something better with their time that would also benefit society instead of screwing screws into little plastic toys all day.
0: You know, moving forward, I am eager to see uh, more plans and uh, ideas and, you know, laws and things like that pushed forward that address this very problem. And there are a number of things sort of being sort of, uh, you know, bandied about to tr- try to co- you know, cover this problem. But the problem is we're not really moving in a very material fashion on any of these uh, at present. Uh, and that kind of sucks.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go full-on communist here and quote like a couple things I've seen on Twitter. Unfortunately, I don't have the names in front of me, but I've seen this sentiment expressed multiple times by different people.
0: Go ahead, go ahead.
1: <laughs> the basic argument that people have when you start talking about communist and socialist like safety nets are, you don't, wait, don't you want people to have to work? It's like, no, I don't no. want people to have to work. I want people to want to work. Yes. If someone wants to contribute to society and the things they do benefit them as well as the people that they're doing this job to benefit, that would be great. Right now if you have to work, a company can do basically anything they freaking want to you because you have to work. The company can pay you basically nothing and treat you like dirt and you have to work six jobs to survive because you have to. If you can, don't have to they have to incentivize you to do so
0: oh hey your, your health insurance is 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 uh, provided through your employer and they give you crap uh, wages but your health insurance through your employer is good enough to make sure you're able to manage your uh, chronic is- illness or uh, your family member with cancer or something like that Well, if you want to change jobs, even, you know, or you lose this one, well, guess what? You're not going to have that anymore. And, you know, maybe your family member dies or you are unable to work for perhaps years on end because suddenly you can't manage your chronic illness. So, yeah, (laughs) that sucks. The idea
1: that gets stated the way that this system apparently is supposed to work, and I don't think it's even a bad idea Is that you go do work for someone because you have skills that they don't, and you both, like, you give them the benefit of your skills, and they give you an equal benefit to you for giving them those skills.
0: A cooperation agreement.
1: Yeah, it's a cooperation, it's an incentive for, like, I have these skills, and I'm incentivized to lend them to you because you're going to give me something equivalent in return. But we don't have an incentive system, we have a pressure system. If I'm not using my skills to do a job, then basically I can't live because Mm -hmm. I'm not using my skills to do a job. So that means if I can't find something that's going to reasonably compensate me for those skills, I have to take something that's going to not reasonably compensate me for those skills because not doing that is essentially illegal in our system. Yep.
0: (laughs) He all right, well, I guess you can't make rent now. Hmm. Can't just let you sit here, so we've got to kick you out. Uh, and if you try to stay here, well, now we're going to have some issues. And just because you couldn't pay for it because you didn't have the right kind of kind of job. Okay. That's kind of depressing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about memory engrams?
0: Um, oh, sure. I didn't have anything ready for that, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, because they're not a thing. uh, I just thought I'd look them up because you hear it a lot, especially in science fiction. Especially uh, in Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah. Memory engrams. We transferred your engrams. He copied his engrams. Engrams is something that was come up by a scientist named Richard uh, Simon in the late 1800s. He was Uh, one of many people who was studying memory.
0: I always get a little uh, uh, you know, feeling of uh-oh when late 1800s uh, medical science comes up.
1: He was experimenting on mice, and he wasn't doing anything worse to mice than we do now.
0: Okay, good. <laughs> but
1: basically, he theorized that memory must be stored in the brain somewhere. And an engram is this hypothetical unit of memory. It is the physical structure of in which a memory or group of memories would be stored.
0: So sort of like your uh, your, your 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 brain particle, your brain uh, memory hard drive, your, your 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 flash memory here.
1: Yeah, you could think of it as being kind of analogous to like a
0: bit. Yes.
1: Now the thing that they hit on with this is like, okay, so we theorize that you have a brain and it has memories in it, so they must be there some place. Uh, They kept testing this on mice by teaching a mouse how to run a maze, then cutting out random bits of its brain and seeing if it still remembered how to run the maze. And it always did.
0: That's kind of wacky.
1: Yeah, so they couldn't find where this engram was supposed to be stored in the brain. Mm -hmm. Apparently later on, a different scientist uh, trained a rabbit to blink at a certain stimulus, and then chemically turned on and off different parts of the rabbit's brain, and he claims to have found it because he turned off a part of the brain and it stopped blinking, but um, it's so deep in the brain, people are pretty iffy on that, and there's a definite chance that he may have just turned off the rabbit's ability to blink.
0: (laughs) Which is what I was about to say, you know, sure he didn't didn't turn off the ability to to blink as opposed to the decision-making portion?
1: (laughs) So basically, as far as memory goes generally we know that we have short-term and long-term memories that's pretty standard as far as we know with things Uh, you get a short-term memory which you can recall immediately but it seems to last a couple hours maybe about 12 hours before it blanks out Um, but then it's converted via some structures in the brain around the hippocampus that's still not completely understood into a long-term memory which just stays Like, people who suffer from debilitating diseases later in life, like Alzheimer's and other things that affect your memory or your short-term to long-term memory conversions still have their long-term memory, because that just is there.
0: Yeah, and uh, I've had uh, a couple of family members who have uh, had uh, Alzheimer's, and, you know, know, it's definitely, you know, a number of instances where they're able to tell stories from years ago Uh, pretty well, and then they're kind of confused what's going on presently, and uh, yeah, exactly.
1: As far as we can tell, the only thing that gets affected in your ability to create new memories is that conversion between short-term and long-term memory.
0: Description, the process.
1: And as far as we can tell, this is all speculative because we know next to nothing about how the brain works, despite what you want to hear on TED Talks. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
1: Memories don't seem to be Stored exactly because you don't really recall a memory you reconstruct it so when you remember something that happened in your past as far as we can tell you're not really remembering the thing that happened you're remembering kind of a vague outline of what happened and then you're filling in the rest
0: a a associative framework where you sort of have you know a the general impression and then those reference other impressions which then reference other impressions and that allows you to sort of step through a series of uh, pictures in your head of what the memory was all about
1: the the thing that i saw a while ago that illustrated this pretty well is if you have like a digital camera or a computer scanner Mm -hmm. and you take a picture of the front of a building it goes through and it takes every single square inch of that building and loads it in. And then when you pull it up on your computer later, it you know loads in every single square inch of the building, inch by inch by inch. Mm-hmm. If you, as a person, look at this building, you register, well, it has those corners there, it has a few windows here, it has a door here. And yeah. then when you remember that building later, you go like, well, it had a corner here, 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 a window about here, a window about here, a door about here, it was made of brick, fill in bricks. You don't remember where every brick was. You just remember there were bricks, and you generally know what bricks look like.
0: Indeed, um, <laughs> I, I guess uh, one one of my sort of uh, weird skills I got is the ability to dr- draw maps of of places. Uh, uh, you know, most most commonly, uh, real world uh, you know countries and things like that. And people are always kind of like amazed when I'm like, "All right, well, I'm going to uh, uh, draw Bangladesh for you real quick," and uh, they're like. Well, how are you able to do that? Well, you just sort of a series of shapes that sort of fit together in this pa- pattern.
1: Yeah. And landmark, landmark, landmark squiggly line.
0: Exactly. You know, you got a little long bit there and you got this kind of going there and you got the uh, the river Delta there and there you go.
1: So kind of this, this general question that we wind up with of where are memories stored. We have no freaking clue.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, this discussion though does kind of remind me of uh some stuff i uh, was sort of picking up uh you know, most mostly of second uh in some of my own previous employment uh the that there's uh, i was uh working near in i guess in the same department as some people that were working on some AI research uh and you know some of their i wasn't super in depth on the research but a lot of their sort of you know pushes forward were to actually try to uh, get a computer to have this sort of associative sort of uh, hierarchy of uh, uh, associations and details, at, you know, you know how to have it look at a picture and inter- uh, build up that sort of uh, network of ideas in order to interpret what was going on. And then it could make a decision from, from that. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, the, the, it just sort of reminded me of, of, of that sort of thing. And that's a real thing that people are trying to do now
1: yeah that was a good transition into what I was thinking of with the way that they say that this computer just works like a brain. if you do a direct comparison, if you were to just assume that your brain's a computer, which like this it doesn't even make sense as an analogy, but you know if you just make the kind of assumption, your brain is a massively inefficient machine, yeah because it's all working at cross purposes most of the time it just you know it works inefficiently in such a way that it becomes efficient again and can do things relatively quickly.
0: It has some uh, emergence phenomenon.
1: And that's the thing. The emergent phenomenon are very important. Like, part of you, party brains, thinking about what you want for dinner and several parts are trying to figure out what you need to do for this work thing. Several of them disagree. You kind of generally work on a consensus here that's like it's like a degree of parallel processing, if we're still using the computer analogies, that's basically unimaginable.
0: Uh, we're, we're multitronic
1: yes <laughs> you're doing so many things that you're thinking about so many things at once different parts of you are are thinking about so many things all at the same time you're not even aware of most of them unless you spend a lot of time trying to think about it and get in contact with those parts of yourself so that you can be told what's happening but even then you n- don't need to be aware of most of it
0: yeah you know, you know you can just sort of let your brain do its various uh jobs and you know and then there and you can know, kind of come up with the other you know, it when the details of those results become relevant, they pop up.
1: But there's a lot of talk about intuition and really, really fast decision-making and how like humans basically make decisions before you're even aware of how you made them. And it's based on a lot of past experience and da, 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 da. But a lot of the things people talk about is how these decisions happen kind of subconsciously. And you can never really know why you made decisions and then I hit on a lot of other kind of schools of therapy and stuff that are like, yeah, um, you can, you just didn't ask.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I guess one of the things I, I sort of try to uh, do in my own, uh, you know, attempts to bring sanity to the world and that, you know, get, engage in people uh, online is to ask myself why I'm saying things to people, so that if people need an explanation, I can provide one, and. There's plenty of people that are able to do that, but not everyone. And so you often run into situations that, like that where it's like, okay, obviously this person I'm talking to doesn't know what they're talking about because they don't know how they're thinking about this in the first place.
1: Well, everyone can, just some people yeah. don't. Yes. All right. Now, aside from some of that, you had some weirdness with... So this episode, I didn't mention it specifically, but Daystrom is played by an African-American. Mm -hmm. and this episode got some like okay praise for being like hey you cast like a super important computer scientist as a black guy in the 60s yeah but then you made him crazy and you made him so crazy that he infected his computer with crazy
0: Hmm. and he ends the episode kind of you know uh passed out uh you know uh, drugged out because they need to to not be in the way again hmm Not a a very good result there, but uh, they started good. I was
1: was thinking through this, and I don't know if there's a good way to resolve it, and it definitely wasn't represented in this episode because they made it so, like... They keep saying this computer's acting in an illogical way, which basically means it's just being erratic, which... So, I guess the thing that worked in the end was kind of random, because it's being erratic. Mm -hmm. So, you shouldn't be able to logically or accurately predict its behaviors.
0: Well, I, I... I, maybe t- stepping back to you know some of the stuff we just talked about, the computer perhaps doesn't understand its decision-making process and sort of had to be uh, guided through asking those questions of itself uh, and to have it sort of uh, question the assumptions that it's operating on in order to realize, oh, maybe I should scan the ship. Oh, I, I did kill people. Whoops. Hmm.
1: Though that's something that we can probably talk about now with that if the with like computers not understanding why they do things especially in a situation like this where for some reason they're they're doing this weird scare tactic thing of like oh my god the computer could even come for captain kirk's job
0: dun, dun, dun. yeah that, that whole plot line was kind of excessive
1: <laughs> but so we we want to now make ais that can do more and more things and make more and more decisions and we're running into a problem of something that we called a black box AI, which basically it's a machine learning algorithm, which is becoming incredibly popular right now. And you feed it a bunch of data. It recognizes patterns in that data. And then you feed it something new and it goes, well, that data matches this pattern. But since it machine learned all this stuff, rewrote a bunch of things, you don't know how it made those decisions. It can't explain it to you. So basically you showed it this thing. It said like, here's my decision based on all of this other data I got. You're like, well, I have no idea how that comes together or what. So yeah. how much do you <laughs> trust it?
0: You know, uh, to, to a certain degree, you know, when you have a situation like that, you, in order to ensure that it is, uh, making proper decisions, you, you, you'd hypothetically, you would have someone sort of spot checking it, uh, as the data is sort of processed through the system, so you every so many decisions it makes, you have uh, a real human come in and say, hmm, this one's not correct, and uh, feed that back into the, or or correct, and then feed that back into sort of the learning data uh, to help sort of uh, make the system more robust and more uh, accurate uh, for what you got going here. Maybe, Um,
1: but maybe you don't have a way to know if it's correct. See, there's good and bad (laughs) things with this. Like, right now they have some of these machine learning AIs, which is not a computer scientists hate when you call them AIs when I'm going to, because it's short computer scientists, people
0: a decision making box.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they, they have them looking for things like lung cancer mm-hmm. and you have a bunch of people and you say like, well, all these people have lung cancer. Like we know we found them and they do. So let's feed it all these x-rays as the data set. Then we will show it an x-ray, and it will look at the patterns and go, this person might have lung cancer, and then you check it. And the computer's better at recognizing these patterns than any random doctor. Mm -hmm. So that's fine, because you're using the computer as a diagnostic tool. You don't care how it recognized this pattern or not. You just need to know that you should check this person for lung cancer.
0: Yeah, it draws your attention to a possible problem.
1: But you have some other things, like I saw an article recently about um, the kinds of machine learning algorithms that they they have on things like Twitter and other social media networks that mm-hmm. are they're employing to try to look for hate speech. It's like, seems like it should work out fine. You feed it a bunch of stuff that you have flagged as hate speech. You say, this is what hate speech looks like. It runs it through its machine learning thingy, and then it starts automatically flagging stuff. But a lot of the language that people use as hate speech is also language that is being reclaimed by the minority groups that the people with hate speech are attacking, which means that (laughs) this algorithm winds up disproportionately blocking the people who you are trying to protect from the hate speech, and less so the people who are doing the hate speech. Yep. But (laughs) you just threw it into a black box. So you don't know how it's making these decisions. You don't know quite how to tweak it. If you don't have a human looking at the stuff, it's just blocking a bunch of people that you had the, you know, decent intention to try to protect.
0: Uh, you know, and and uh, even third parties who are trying to sort of draw attention to the you know, situation, the dynamic, you know, and some of the terminology being used uh, and symbols and things like that, they're getting blamed as well. And so you get the situation where the the people that are engaging in the bad behavior are, you know, you know, occasionally using the things that are that be flagged but are also, in a way, sort of trying to um, arms race the situation, develop sort of different ways to sort of talk about it so they don't get uh, blamed. And then, you know, and, and, and then eventually, when those also get uh, noticed, then they move on to the next thing and the next thing. Meanwhile, everybody else who's trying to fight against the, you know, this stuff uh, is being forced to use these terms in order to, uh, you know, talk about the situation or to reclaim it or anything else, sort of, you know, to sort of counter this uh, this movement. And, they're the ones getting screwed over.
1: And it's really easy to just accidentally put, like, even if you're not doing machine learning stuff, it's really easy to accidentally put biases into these machine-driven AI decisions. And if you don't Mm -hmm. even know why they're making the decision, it's even harder to root out. Yep. I'm going to steal an example from uh, Oliver Thorne because it's a very, very good, uh, concise example on this stuff. He did a talk Mm -hmm. on, on, like, AI and war. And he did this incredibly good example, which is like if you are making a new social media app and you want it to do the Twitter thing where it pops up what people are talking about on the side. Mm -hmm. Well, the two things that people are always talking about are the weather and lunch. Those are always the two most popular things people are talking about on social media. So you say, (laughs) well, that's going to get boring. So let's have it filter out weather and lunch we have it like look at the most popular stuff but if it's weather or lunch we'll filter it out because people are always talking about that but now you have a ai that's biased against climate change reporting
0: yep (laughs) or uh developments in uh uh, food safety perhaps
1: so you know you you had a good thing to look at but you accidentally gave it a bias that you didn't intend
0: Mm -hmm. yeah unintended consequences they're a thing and people need to be wary of them and not just assume the system is going to be perfect uh right out the box or even a long time down the road
1: and you don't even hit a particular problem if you can go back and look at it and go like well darn but if you have one of these black box ais you can't even do that you don't know how it's making its decisions
0: you can try to do uh after the fact studies and say okay we have a our own we've taken the data for ourselves and we've you know Run our own sort of uh, uh, analysis of, of what the data is actually saying, and we can now compare that to what's been filtered out. By that point, all these conversations are all news. These are things that have been selected already uh, and uh, either promoted or denied, and the world has already moved on. So this is kind of useless for what's going on, you know, has gone on previously, and because you know conversations and you know, the public consciousness evolve and change, um, this is going to be very useful. Uh, information for the next <laughs> you, know, it, you know the current iteration of what the black box is doing
1: so to summarize like don't have computers take over things that humans should be doing let them mm-hmm. take over things that humans shouldn't be doing and then take care of those humans
0: yes <laughs> um i i got oh, uh, something that uh you know, you know else if you if you're uh, up for a slight change of pace mm-hmm Want to talk about Einstein?
1: Sure. What did he All do? Right. <laughs> is he a computer?
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, hey, kid. Are, is Einstein a computer? <laughs> no. Um, so, job uh, in the uh, in the episode here is sort of framed as this uh, tortured genius who has had this early life success, and then you know after that sort of settled into academia. And has a sort of want to have more than just that, that one thing, you know, years and years ago. Uh, and so, you know, he, that's why he's pushing so hard to make the M5 work. And, you know, he's this is the fifth version of this sort of machine. And he really, really, really wants this one to be successful. So he's very defensive about it all that sort of stuff. And it, it sort of got me thinking about this sort of idea of the celebrity scientist, uh, we've had several of them throughout, uh, you know, especially the last century or so. But Einstein is sort of the the, the, the one that people sort of cite most often. Uh, and he's, of course, well known for, you know, uh, theories of relativity. Uh, he did a lot more than that. But those are sort of the things that are sort of the big, you know, huzzahs for him. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, one, but he did win a Nobel Prize, but not for, for relativity.
1: No? What did yeah, he win uh, it for?
0: Uh, the photoelectric effect. Ah huh. yes, <laughs> <Solid happens. laughs> which is uh, which is kind of hilarious since it's all about the you know the quantum theory there. And quantum mechanics wasn't really sort of accepted until like a few years after you got it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so the 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 full prize was like and other contributions, but the full electric effect was the uh, the main thing they cited. Um, but uh, you know the uh, but the idea in the public uh, public uh, consciousness is that Einstein came up with relativity uh, sort of as this boy genius sort of thing. Like I think it was in his 20s when he did that. The problem was that he didn't really kind of come up with it on its own. He actually worked with other people and, you know, his collaborations that he's building off of previous uh, work and things like that. Um, For instance, uh, the the work of uh, uh, Michelson, of the Michelson-Morley experiment where like, hey, is the speed of light like consistent depending on where you're shooting it? Oh, it apparently is. Uh, then there's uh you know uh, Lorentz who is all about. We're gonna have some Lorentz transformations here. That's a physics thing. So if you don't know what that's co- what I'm talking about, there, it's it's complicated. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and then of course there's uh, Poincare, the Poincaré, the Poincaré uh, conjecture, and uh, that's all about spheres and things like that. But we'll not worry about that right now. Um, and, and so the, the, the you know, the, 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 shoulders of giants sort of situation here where he was working with and, uh, you know, moving beyond the, the work of people that were done pre- previously and corresponding with them. And so he didn't just suddenly dream up this, you know, Eagles MC square sort of stuff. He, he was very much putting together the pieces and putting his, you know, his own sort of spin on the ideas, but it's still very much a, you know, he, yeah, sure. He's a smart guy, but. It isn't sort of, I'm going to create out of nothing the ultimate theory of space and time here. It's, I am going through a process as a scientist and building a new idea.
1: But you can't have your individualist rhetoric if you agree that people work collaboratively even across generations.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And and yeah, this this individualist idea sort of, you know, infects the, the idea of Einstein and... Uh, there, you know, I've ranted a bit about uh, science journalism and how it can be very good or very bad kind of depending on how things are being sort of taken and if it's sort of falling back on the sort of uh, thing where the, 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 the lone you know, torture genius scientist who is doing all the, the science on their own and that's not really a thing. Yeah, you know, there's sure there's some people that sort of uh, give it a go you know, as far as their own conduct but they tend not to get a whole lot done Honestly, um, you, know, you know, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, what about Stephen Hawking? Well, he has Roger Penrose, you know. <laughs> you know he had someone he worked with closely that, you know, that's just like, okay, we're going to, you know, have a, a process here. We're going to have interaction. We're going to have collaboration. And, you know, sure, you know, you might get more of the credit here uh, due to how sort of things uh, unfold here. But you're not standing on your own here.
1: It's all about personality.
0: Yeah. Sort of thing always
1: (laughs) kind of reminds me of, uh, like, how much stuff do you think Edison actually invented?
0: Not much. Nothing.
1: Like, literally (laughs) nothing. The guy never invented a single thing in his life. He just sold it.
0: Yep. (laughs) He had a a research lab he funded, and, you know, it's like, oh, well, since I funded this, I get the patents. (laughs) Ha ha ha.
1: Yeah. Other people invented all the stuff, and if they didn't work for him, he just downright stole them.
0: Yep. (laughs)
1: He was just a salesman,
0: but uh, you know, people still call it Edison's light bulb. That's where we're at now. <laughs> yeah. So it is. Yeah. You, know, you know, the previous episode there, I was talking about sort of demystification of the you know the Constitution, and but there's other things we sort of de- need to demystify, and that's scientists as well as yeah, well, someone that be with nice. the background as being a scientist. Yeah, that's something that you know I had to sort of do at some point myself. To realize, oh yeah, there's it's more than just sort of I'm going to write the right equation and, and do the right theory, and that's going to solve all the things I, I'm, I'm thinking about here, and that'll be great. No, it's a bit more involved than that.
1: Well, we definitely don't have the time or research to go into it now, but we really need to spend like a full hour go like going over sciences at some point. Science.
0: Yes. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to plot that in the future. Hmm.
1: (laughs) But I think at the minute we are over time and we're running out of things to talk about for this episode. (gasps) That usually means that it's time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! yay! Yay!
0: Hey everybody, I, I've tallied up all the various points. Our contestants have answered some questions. Some of them got vaporized in the process, but you know the drill. So we got some winners uh, to announce here. So uh, the first winner uh, you know, has uh, successfully completed the gunshots by computer uh, you know, uh, challenge here, and that's the M5 for being a computer that, well, pulls the trigger and kills a bunch of people. What does it win, Gepp? M5
1: wins a bunch of
0: drones.
1: cause like Just because I need to make the point that I forgot to make that it's interesting that they blame, they keep blaming Daystrom for his computer doing things instead of saying, hey, this computer's acting fully autonomy and is evil because the person who programmed the computer may be responsible for its actions.
0: It's a good point here. Hmm. So, maybe we we should do uh, an episode of Scientism and then Drones at the end. (laughs) Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> our uh, second uh, prize is the, the Human Factor Prize. Uh, Daystrom gets this one for making M5 perhaps a little too human. What does he win, Gepwin? Daystrom
1: needs some um, parenting guidelines. It's like, make your human computer and then raise it better, dude. Also, uh, he, I think he, we should just generally give everyone in this show kind of like free therapy.
0: That sounds like a good idea. Uh Daystrom, I hear there's this uh, uh guy named uh, uh dr light uh he worked on a, something called a mega man he might have some uh input for you our third uh, uh game show prize adventure here is the talk It to death award which goes to Kirk as usual for doing this to the m five so it shuts down and decides eh ah, i'm gonna die anyway so let's go. What does he win up one
1: Kirk at this point gets blocked generally from all social media because Right now, this is the third time he's talked something into killing itself.
0: Damn it, Kirk! Hmm, well, I guess it's about time I blocked him. Our final one uh, for today is the uh, a new award, which is the Future OSHA Socks, which goes to Harbor for getting vaporized due to power cords, the future being replaced by deadly laser beams, I guess. What does he win, Gepwin?
1: Harper, to collect his prize, needs to fill out the M4385 form in triplicate detailing the way that the death was definitely not his own fault and could be maybe the fault of the ship despite the forms that he filled out when taking the job that, you know, Starfleet is definitely not responsible for accidental deaths due to hyper-intelligent sentient computer.
0: And it doesn't have a clause for the sentient computer being, uh, you know, Starfleet installed or not. So he's probably out of luck. So that's it. Yeah, that's uh, all we got this week. Uh, I hope we have more, uh, more, uh, uh, you, know, you know, craziness next week. Um, and hopefully, I don't get vaporized. I'm I'm surrounded by power cords here.
1: Yes, don't get vaporized, but thank you all for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show!
0: We're
1: almost done with
0: this season. Holy smokes!
1: we got like two episodes left now for
0: this yes. season. Um, I don't think I've seen either of them.
1: Uh, I've seen both of these, I remember. This one's no good. Well, its I don't know if it's good. I can't remember if it's good. I remember it's silly, because it's another one of those alternate Earth evolution
0: <laughs> ones. This time, they haven't even gotten to the Constitution yet, though.
1: No. We had, like, three of these this season. I didn't realize they were so tightly packed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, hopefully, uh, you know, people have learned that Maybe we shouldn't have the parallel Earths, except in space, and doesn't make any sense. Plots so tightly packed, uh, you know, from from this season here.
1: Oh, this one is written by Gene Roddenberry. Uh oh. And Gene El which, which uh, hmm.
0: okay, that, that, that's better.
1: It's be an interesting mix. This episode is called "Bread and Circuses."
0: Are we gonna get some chariots? Yeah. Are we gonna get some gladiatorial games? Yep. Are we going to get silly hats and uh, robes and long speeches about uh, destroying Carthage?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Sweet. We get, what if Roman Empire, but in the 60s?
0: In the 60s in space.
1: Yeah. It's like, what (laughs) if the Roman Empire had persisted to the modern day?
0: I guess we technically have precedent for this in some ways uh, with the Romulans already, because they had all the centurion business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they just didn't make them Romulans. I guess they didn't want to use the Romulans again. Yeah.
0: This <laughs>
1: this episode, like, I, I remember only because it has another one of those twist endings. It's like, really, come on.
0: Was it secretly Westworld the entire time? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would have been better. <laughs> it gets weirdly religious or religiously oriented.
0: moment it's Rome. Mm-hmm. I I mean some sort of Jesus type figure? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. I, I'm not I'm, I'm a little worried now hmm. Yep Yeah. Giant shrug, I guess hmm.
1: Anyway, you can find out how silly and Roman this episode is next week on Watchers of Tomorrow
0: Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow When in Rome, lock phasers on decadence <laughs> have been listening to watchers of tomorrow a podcast on science fiction media find and follow watchers of tomorrow on podbeam youtube spotify itunes google play stitcher pocketcast spreader digital podcast and perhaps many more to come if you enjoy our podcast make sure to subscribe for more and where possible make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review you may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin, and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on youtube.com slash Dr. and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.